Randy, I know we just had Dan Belkowski, founder and chief pricing officer at Product Tranquility on the podcast a few weeks ago, but I have so many more questions about pricing. Do you think there's a chance we could get him back on? Well, Lily, let me answer that question with another question. Have you ever heard of Betteridge's Law of Headlines? Um, no. It says that any headline in a newspaper that's posed as a question can be answered with the word no. But I think we found Lily's corollary. If there's a question asked in one of our intros, the answer is always yes. Okay, so <laughs> you're saying that... Yep, Dan's back. We go even deeper into the world of pricing strategy this week. Will we need to get him back again someday to answer even more questions from us? Stay tuned. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover loads of free resources to help you with your product practice. You can also find more information about Mind the Products conferences and their great training opportunities happening around the world and online. Create a free account on the website for a fully personalized experience and to get access to the full library of awesome content and the weekly curated newsletter. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Welcome back to the podcast, Dan. It's so great to be here for part two of our episode on pricing. How are you doing? I am doing great. It's so great to be back. I'm very excited for our conversation today, Lily and Randy. So we had a really good chat in our last episode, which guys, if you haven't listened to already, you should definitely go and listen to that first. Um, and right at the beginning of the conversation, you teased us with a bit of like a, a Con potentially controversial statement about why you hate freemium um, as a strategy for pricing. So I need I need to ask, because I didn't ask last time, why do you hate freemium? Oh, man. Well, uh, I'm expecting the torches and pitchforks to come out <laughs> as I take on this holy war topic. Uh, maybe nothing could be as controversial as whether you use tabs or spaces in your code. <laughs> so I... You know, I think I maybe mentioned this the last time I had done my first real world stint in the world of pricing. I had done an internship about 12 years ago now for a successful Silicon Valley startup. And one of the questions on the CEO's desk was, you know, should they do a freemium strategy? And it was a, you know, at the time, you know, the high flyers, if you looked at the TechCrunch articles, was all like, oh, Evernote was sort of the darling of the freemium movement. And so I spent a lot of time looking at you know, the companies that were held up as these paragons of success uh, using a freemium approach. And one of the interesting things I discovered as you sort of dug below the headlines of those articles is this really loose definition of success because what they were able to do was in mass pretty significant user bases. But curiously missing was any sort of numbers around the revenue or profitability or growth on those metrics whatsoever. Uh, and so, you know, and you know, learning over the course of you know now over a decade since, and talking to many companies that have tried to do this, what I found is just it's a it's a really not a good approach. Uh, what I'll say overall is that if anyone's mentioning 
freemium as approach. Almost universally, the better answer is to go with a free trial, uh, 14 to 30 day free trial. I'm a big fan of, um, and freemium, we should be very precise in how we define it. Cause I think some of the confusion in this space is because people will be like, Oh, well, you know, uh, uh Facebook is freemium. It's like, no, free, you know, Facebook is a multi-sided network. You know, the, you, you know, you are the user who are being paid, for, you know, monetize your attention and it's being sold to advertisers who are paying real, real cash, right? Versus, you know, what a, f- a true freemium is, is we've got a free offer and then we've got some other premium offer. Also, where this gets confusing is people will talk about something like uh, Duolingo, like, oh, well, Duolingo is freemium. Well, Duolingo is not pure freemium because they have an ad-supported free model. So that's still not what I would call freemium. So when I, we're talking about freemium, I'm explicitly saying there's a non-monetized free offer, and then there's a premium version of that that you upgrade to. So Slack um, or Calendly or something like that. Yeah, I think those are those are canonical examples of, of freemium that I think people uh, will bring up. Uh, that and so I think the the problem is is that and I'll come back to Slack and Calendly because they are exceptions. But people use them as if they're the rule. And so let me, let me come back. And if I don't, uh, remind me because I'll, I'll come back to why those are important. So let's, let's quickly just dive in on so this idea of you know, free trial versus freemium. Software is what economists would refer to as an experience good. So an experience good, your perception of the product's value changes as you experience it. And so this is not something that's only the domain of software. If you've ever been in a grocery store, you know, pushing your grocery cart around and somebody tries to hand you a sausage on a toothpick as you're doing your Sunday shopping and you try the sausage, you're like, oh, that's good. Well, okay. Like, you know, oh, what are those? Let me see. Let me go look at them because you're, you know, you weren't thinking about sausage before. It wasn't on your uh, shopping list. And now you're like, oh, actually like that sparked something in me. Now I want to, I want to do more. Right. And so look, consumers have been using this in, in sample for a while. And no matter how good your marketing or growth team are and I'm sure they're amazing. It doesn't matter the you know, your website design or copy, your know, white papers you create, the videos you create. There's something that doesn't quite hit that uh, reptilian part of our brain, such that when we see the product with our own experience, with our data in it, that we go, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. And so I think we get that with a free trial. So I'm a big fan of, of that. Um, but ultimately, you know, freemium. What I learned over over the you know course of you know research in, in many years is that look best in class freemium they're going to convert about one to three percent of those users into paid customers so it tends to be one of these things that really you need a massive market for um, and so you know in B two B that's rarely the case uh, so it immediately sets you up to you know not be successful in monetizing those folks the other thing is is it it you know, given this, we're talking uh, to mostly product managers, I believe, in your audience. One of the things I've seen is that the people that adopt your free offering over time, they tend to almost be an entirely different customer segment than those that go to your paid offering. But the problem is, is that in the flow of product feedback that's coming back into the organization, often it's very hard to tell if you feedback is coming from your free users or your paying customers. I've, I've worked with companies before that, you know, they've got a, a support Slack channel that the product managers are on, you know, in case for escalations and maybe support sending in feature requests. And, you know, like 
everyone's trying to be diligent, but like, you know, like, oh, hey, user requested this feature comes through. You don't understand that, oh, it's from our free side, right? And so the, we're, we're then blending. It can, and I will say the signal versus noise ratio can be overwhelming because if we think about this one to three percent conversion, I was like, well, 99 to 97 percent of my user base is now this, this free side, right? Which could, I, I've seen this very dramatically because what uh, can tend to happen is if you go to some of these uh, review sites like a Trustpilot, you may see, you know, 90% of the reviews are from a persona that is using it for a use case that you're like, your paying customers aren't using it for. I actually had a, a client one time that was, you know, their B2B SaaS software company and but most of their free users were using it for their families some family use case and so they're like oh this is great for being able to monitor what my kids watch on you know on their computers you're like monitor what your kids and if you imagine like you're a a legitimate buyer like doing your research on one of these review sites and you're seeing all this you're like is this what is this software for, right? So all the work your your marketing team is doing and positioning, et cetera, is, is all getting diluted. Um, and I think this giant, you know, 90 plus percent of free users as well, it's it creates this illusion, this mirage in the growth desert that, look, CMOs, growth teams are doing a very difficult job. It's very hard to acquire customers. And so I think the thing is, is that it looks very tempting to be like, look, if if product would just add this one more feature, if we just change this onboarding flow, if we just maybe we had this pop up for the free users that showed them all the amazing stuff they could get if they upgraded, just, you know, we just do this one thing and we would unlock this conversion. And I just think it drives a lot of inefficiency, unproductive conversations, and it just haven't seen it work. And so I think that we set ourselves up for a significant amount of malinvestment and, you know, un- unfortunate conversations in the business. Um, I feel like we should, we could do like a whole episode just on <laughs> why not to do <laughs> premium. Um, but y- you talked about a few different kind of um, departments there that were sort of would be involved in conversations around pricing and packaging. In your experience, like who is typically involved in deciding or like defining what the pricing and the packaging um, options look like for a business and what kind of roles are they playing and and who's kind of making that, I guess, that final decision? Mm. Well, so I think, you know, there's obviously different companies are different stages in their maturity level. So it's hard to say broadly uh, exactly where it is. I think one of the... uh, Mm -hmm. Difficulties of, of me is on my business is I'll, I'll have, uh, you know, who the kind of champion stakeholder is who even, you know, reaches out for, uh, to me for, for pricing help can be different. It could be the CRO, it could be the CPO, it could be the CMO, it could be the CEO. Um, and so I think you know, there's not sort of a, a consistent owner. Uh, the best data I saw on this, I believe was OpenView had some, uh, info on it. It was about, I think 50% of 50, 60% of B2B SaaS companies, uh, the CEO still own pricing. And then the remaining, let's say 40% was sort of, you know, evenly split depending upon the company by, you know, head of sales, CPO or, or CMO. Um, so the who is sort of leading the charge can vary uh, quite dramatically. But in terms of, you know, so that, that's sort of the uh, uh, descriptive, like how things are, right? Uh, but if we want to talk about the normative, how, how I think they should be, uh, then ultimately, usually my recommendation is, is product marketing uh, should own it. Um, mm-hmm. 
So there's a couple a couple of things going on here. So so who shouldn't own it? Whoever is responsible for negotiating pricing with customers shouldn't own it uh, because we really want to protect the uh, strategic element of pricing from the tactical day to day concerns. And I think you know giving you know your head of sales pricing authority is kind of like putting Dracula in charge of the blood bank. It is almost <laughs> Halloween, so we'll we'll throw a little uh, Halloween reference in there for our listeners. <laughs> So I, I just don't think the the right incentives align. Um, ultimately, look, I, I I come from a product background. I'm sure your listeners are all a lot of product folks. Um, I believe product management could and has the capability to own it. I just think, as I you know have done that job and the uh, amount of different things that are on your plate, the ability to do a rigorous uh, job doing that um, along with all the other things product leaders are are asked to do just becomes a little much. It's again, I think they're in the right position in the organization. It's just, you know, given all the other super critical priorities they're asked to do, uh, they're definitely should have a seat at the table. Uh, but I think product marketing and look, I, I look at product marketing and product management as dynamic duo, they're Batman and Robin. I'm not saying one is Batman and one is Robin. They could both be Batman if we want, but uh, I believe them as, you know, they should be partners tied at the hip for the most part, uh, but they're going to own different elements of, of strategic uh, go to market. And so product marketing, they usually will own positioning. I believe your pricing and packaging is a function of your positioning in the organization. They're usually really tied into messaging, which requires a really deep understanding of your fundamental customer value and value propositions. They really have to know uh, competitive alternatives because you're usually involved in helping uh, create sales enablement material for uh, sales and go-to-market and uh, other collateral that may exist on, on the website. And so they and they also are in a strategic position in the business where they can own that more long term strategic lever without getting t- caught into the sort of the tactical day to day needs of the business, right? So that being said, pricing is a I think less mature function overall than product management because we often talk about you know, product management compared to many many other functions in the organization is it's gone undergone. You know, tremendous evolution in the last you know, 20 years. I think pricing is even farther behind it. And so one of the things I recommend is that until we can get pricing to a level of maturity similar to product management, I really think it makes sense to have a pricing committee or pricing council. So, so what I just said is that doesn't deviate at all, like still having product marketing in charge, but you do want to have the other stakeholders, you know, sales, customer success, CEO, uh, finance uh, at those uh, product, obviously at the at the table there in a pricing council. Uh, but have someone, you know, like we require, you know, we give authority to product managers to make difficult decisions in order to keep the business moving forward. I think we still need to have, although you have a pricing council, you still have a designated leader who has authority to continue to make decisions because there's always, you know, pricing much like product, you know, you're always going to make a decision that makes someone at the at the table unhappy, right? I mean, uh, I'm a pick on customer support. Just you know, nothing wrong with customer support people. They work really hard, but they would love if product never shipped a new feature because their support load will go up every time you know features and UI changes. But business can't you know continue to survive and grow that way. So we do make trade offs. I think pricing is very similar. Dan, you you said earlier that uh, you know if uh, the product managers are in the support channels and you're on a freemium thing, then you're just going to be hearing things back from from the free customers. Similar, uh, and and you need to ignore some of that. Uh, similarly, if you just monitored the reasons that people didn't sign the deals with sales, they're always going to say it's too expensive. So 
when do you actually go and, and what are the triggers to, for for reviewing? Uh, is our pricing strategy right? Mm, I think that's a, a great point. So, uh, look, I think we talked about last time some of the different sort of metrics that you might want to be looking at. So, you know, I'm not going to re- rehash uh, all of those, but I think you know one of the kind of rules of thumb is you know we should be looking at pricing if we have win loss codes in our CRM for example we should be looking at those win loss codes uh, generally we want to be seeing you know maybe a third of our deals being lost to pricing if it's less than that we're probably priced too low if it's higher than that we've got another problem right we want to be looking at things like discounting percent in terms of overall like when do you make a change or when do you you know reevaluate pricing i would say there's no you know magic number Ultimately, pricing is a function of value, and I think your, especially your relative differentiated value, and your value is always changing. You know, you're as product leaders, we're constantly focused on how do we you know, add more value, solve more customer problems. Our competitors, product teams are doing the same thing. You know, we live in very dynamic markets. You've got changes in, in interest rates, which which change you know how people value different. Uh, the importance people place on different value drivers. So you may see uh, a shift from, you know, how can you help us grow revenue to how can you help us save costs, right? And therefore, you know, you're at that point, you know, if we believe that pricing and value are tied together, it's like, okay, well, now we're shifting the value proposition. And so our pricing may not need to change because our buyer has shifted how they sort of value our product, right? And so we we may want to do things, things like that. Generally, we put guardrails on it. I think you you should be at a minimum, evaluating or changing something in your pricing and packaging at a minimum once every two years, and probably no more than once a quarter. I think those are good, you know, and then what I see is, you know, but making it so it's top of mind in the organization, and that's uh, things like putting together a pricing council, having governance and a process by which you know, conversations about monetization can happen on a regular basis. You know, I've had conversations with CEOs who they... We'll talk about, oh, yeah, we had a three-day business or three-day offsite with our executive team, right? Three days with the most expensive resources in your company. I'd be like, oh, great. What did you guys talk about in terms of pricing and packaging? Well, we didn't talk about pricing and packaging. Like, really? Three full days with the most <laughs> senior people in your organization and one of the three growth levers of your organization you didn't talk about at all? Now, they did. They just didn't talk about it in an explicit way because I'm sure they talked about things like conversion rates or how do we increase value, right? And so I think that's is part of the what I'm hoping to get is just it becomes much more of an explicit conversation and that this is a thing that you, know, you do have control over in your, in your business. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I'll let you kind of drive whatever you want to from that. Hey, Lily, you're a senior product leader. Why, yes, Randy, how kind of you to notice. <laughs> I may have led just a few product teams in my time. So you know how important it is to hear stories and get insights from other product leaders facing similar challenges. Oh, my golly gosh super important. And to be honest, not so easy to find that these days. So much has changed in the past couple of years. Oh God, I hear you. Well, the reason I bring it up is because Mind the Product have just released a series of brand new case studies from senior product leaders all about leading product teams through change. Tell me more. 
Well, in this brand new and totally free resource, Mind a Product explores the stories of five product leaders who have effectively navigated change in their current and past positions, unveiling crucial lessons and sharing the principles you need to embrace in order to tackle challenges in your role as a product leader. Very interesting. So who are these product leaders? Well, they've got some goodies. There's Dave Washa, who is the former CPTO at Zoopla. Uh, Kate Lido, who's an amazing product leadership executive coach, and Navia Rahani Gupa, CPO at Peak, for starters. And there's even a bonus tip section on how to look after yourself as a product leader and oodles more further reading suggestions. This sounds amazing. How do I get my hands on it? Oh, that's the easy part. Just sign up at mindtheproduct.com, leading through change. Um, I love your idea of the pricing council. I think that sounds like a a, a great strategy for, I guess, and, and that pricing council would then drive those conversations and make sure they happen as well, which, um, which sounds uh, awesome as well. One of the things that I was kind of curious to sort of dig into a little bit more, and we've talked a little bit about this t- today, is how different businesses do pricing strategy, you know, whether it's symptomatic of like the business being at the stage that it's at and just kind of you know we talked before as well about the the different kind of types of pricing so the like doing your cost-based pricing your competitor pricing and then your value-based pricing you know is it symptomatic of like oh we just need to like cover our costs and then we need to like be competitive and then we need to understand value and and that's the process that every business goes through or is it a bit, you know, is there more to it than that? Is there more strategic kind of planning and thought that goes into the pricing strategy for different businesses? In your experience, obviously, I know you don't know what everyone does, but um, it'd be great to get some, you know, some of your kind of insight into how that happens in different businesses. Yeah. So just to like clarify the question a little bit. So it's uh, how do people uh, currently or, or how do I generally see people approach the uh, pricing and packaging process in their companies? Yeah. And are they thinking like, OK, we're going to do this now, but in three years we're going to have this thing. And at that point, we're going to pivot to a different model or a different kind of type of pricing. I, I would love to think that it's that uh, strategic. Uh, I don't look. I mean, uh, I think the part of the problem is that uh, I I see a biased sample of companies um, yeah. because there's uh, there's a reason that they come to me um, because they they're realizing it's a problem and they're realizing that they don't know what to do about it. So I don't see the companies that you know maybe don't even realize the problem and don't know what they're doing about it. Right. Um, I don't see it talked about nearly as much as something like acquisition. So I think, maybe, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but when I talk about there's three ways to grow a SaaS business, there's acquisition, monetization, and retention. And it feels like to me, I don't know if you know, this resonates with you, but almost all the oxygen in the room gets taken up with acquisition. It's like, how do we get more people in the door, grow, 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 uh, acquire new logos, uh, et cetera. And you know, maybe you see a little bit of that shift into the retention space when you start to see some macroeconomic recessionary headwinds start to take in. Uh, but you know, monetization is, you know, I think... Part of it goes to this problem of, of, do you have a governance process? Do you have a monetization process? Do you have an ownership structure at all? 
Um, and assuming you do, first of all, that's a big assumption. I think the uh, what I, some data I've seen is that you know, sort of full time, full time pricing person, only about fifty percent of B two B SaaS companies that are IPO stage, which I think is like a hundred million uh, in ARR, have have a full time pricing person. Uh, and then you know, it's again, it's difficult to tell. You know, it's like okay, is that in in the interim is that owned you know partially by product marketing are they doing anything about it at all um so it's so data on this can be a little bit difficult to come by but i think the part of the decision making from a strategy perspective what you're wanting to think about is a couple of different factors as you scale so how so how do how do these things change as companies grow you know you've got a change in um strategic alternatives like are you primarily focused on short-term, relatively certain profits or long-term, relatively uncertain profits. Um, so, you know, it's like, it's very difficult. You know, it, I, I think one of the conversations over the last, say, I mean, we've been in a weird zero interest rate phenomenon, uh, uh, monetary regime for the last, you know, since basically 2008, um, and so there really was this idea of, you know, a dollar in profitability acquired a hundred years from now is just as valid as a dollar in profit acquired now. And so I'm going to push all of my decisions out into the future that uh, maximize profitability. And it's only recently, um, have we started to come out of that, uh, fever dream. And so I think that's, that's one area where that's really sort of driving, uh, this level of conversation. Then I think the other thing is as you sort of scale, you know, do you have the process, people, and technology? Are you are you just uh, pricing for one market, or are you pricing internationally? Right? Those are these are different areas that can grow over time. So it's it's difficult to answer because the problem is like there's so many companies at different uh, levels of, of scale that it's difficult to say like how everyone's doing it because cause we just have to talk about every company sort of uh, individually uh, depending on you know uh, where they are. Cool. And I suppose when um, you're kind of looking at making just, you know, those sort of strategic decisions and you're looking at changing your pricing and packaging, obviously there must be some modeling that needs to happen in order to see, okay, so if we change it like this, then um, this is the impact that it's going to have on forecasting and, uh, and that kind of thing. How do you, when you're working with businesses, like how do you work on modeling the impact of changes to pricing? Yeah, that's a great question. I want to be very cautious with a question like this because there is a contradiction in, let's say, general manager behavior where they have a tendency to say, well, if I can't get 100% certainty, then I'll just go with my gut. <laughs> so it's it's the like, well, if data can't give me precise you know, answers of exactly what's going to happen, then I'm just going to completely shoot from the hip. Uh, and so I feel like uh, when it, there's a, there's a, there's a logical fallacy Im embedded there um, because actually the larger the uncertainty, the less data you actually need to, to reduce that uncertainty. So, so it's really about how do we measure where the uncertainty is in our, in, in, in this exercise and then actively pursue ways to, to remove it. So I will say, like, one can never know with absolute certainty how customers will react to a price change. But, you know, there are many ways that you know, we can 
go towards that problem and uh, try to avoid getting too nerdy for your audience. Uh, I know, uh, you know, two big movies of the summer this year were Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, so anyone who did, I didn't see Barbie, but I did go see Oppenheimer. Anyone who uh, went to see Oppenheimer may recall that uh, there was a discussion in there when uh, the Manhattan Project was going on uh, was, uh, hey, if we split the atom, there's a non-zero chance we could set the atmosphere on fire. Uh, and so uh, you had the smartest physicists in the world trying to figure out, well, crap, like, what do we do, right? So it makes looking like what's the impact of a pricing change going to be look like, uh, you know, like, uh, this is this is a baby baby stakes here. It's like <laughs> we're worried about setting the entire atmosphere of the planet on fire with the nuclear explosion. Um, so one of the very intelligent, uh, I believe he won a Nobel Prize in physics, uh, Enrico Fermi, uh, came up with uh, what's called a Fermi decomposition. Um, and so Fermi decomposition is a structured way to look at uh, problems with a lot of unknowns, right? And so we think about any sort of financial or impact modeling now, Fermi decomposition, for anyone who's ever gone through consulting interviews, uh, you may have things like, well, how many ping pong balls can fit inside the fuselage of a 747, uh, right? And it's like, well, I don't know, right? And we're like, well, what would I have to know? Okay, well, there'd be some uncertainty around like, what's the diameter of a ping pong ball? What's the diameter of the fuselage? How long is a 747, right? Like, is it by putting balls in the wings or just in the main compartment, right? Uh, so this is a gen generic example of what a Fermi decomposition is, right? And we can do the same thing with any sort of business impact and then strategically look at what is the different values of the variables and what is our relative uncertainty about those values. So I want to make sure that people understand that uh, actually, I wrote a post about this uh, last week was uh, uh, books I, I, I rec highly recommend. One of them is this book by a guy named Douglas Hubbard. Uh, he talks about Fermi decompositions. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, How to Measure Anything, uh, Measuring the Intangibles of Measuring Intangibles in Business, I believe is the subtitle. And one of the things that he talks about is, you know, measurement is not the removal of uncertainty, it's a reduction of uncertainty. And so we want to think through that in terms of like, okay, how do we think of all of the different factors, whether it's, you know, what is this going to do to conversion? What is this going to do to churn? What is this going to do to our, our new business growth? What are existing customers going to do? And then how do we think about getting additional information to reduce those uncertainties, right? And this is how we need to think about the value of information. Like we're talking about customer value, but there's also a value of information, right? And so depending on the level of this exercise, you know, for example, let me use a case, like if you're the CEO of Intel and you're trying to decide, should I spend $10 billion on a new fab for, in for Intel to manufacture chips? Well, it could very easily be worth $10 million to go run some of these very in-depth analytical studies for you to determine whether or not you spend you know, $10 billion. Likewise, if I'm trying to make a decision, I think the net impact of the company is going to be 100K, like no way am I going to spend you know, a million or 100,000. Maybe I'll spend $1,000, right? And so we need mm -hmm. to always think about what is the relative impact going to be to the business? And I mean, I happen to be in a position where you know pricing has tremendous upside which is why people why people do it um so w there's a couple of different other methods you know so one of the, i think one of the things we talked about last time was uh, indirect uh, research methods like discrete choice uh 
uh, modeling, which is a way to get uh, quantitative willingness to pay and, and preference uh, data from your market. And so one of the things that uh, companies will do based upon uh, the results they get from those studies is they have very sophisticated statistical models in the back end that allow you to run uh, you know, simulations. Some of those techniques uh, may or may not be applicable uh, in, you know, given the other factors, uh, dimensions of your business. But uh, but that is uh, another way people do it. Uh, you know, there's plenty of FP&A um, uh, analysts out there, you know, working, uh, you know, who former Goldman Sachs uh, investment bankers, right, who can uh, run different, um, you know, scenario analysis uh, models uh, with a, you know, Performa inside uh, Excel, et cetera. Um, and there's, there's many other uh, advanced sort of techniques that you can use as well. So just as a kind of quick follow-up to that, when you are making changes to, to pricing or pricing and packaging, what do you recommend for um, your, ex- you know, the, the existing customers? Like, how do you recommend changing, uh, either maintaining or changing the situation for existing customers? Yeah, it's a very important question. And I think the first thing is that it's totally acceptable and recommended to almost treat that as a second project because it, it can be so intense um, and to determine what you're... So I think, right, we want to be able to think, you know, create the right frame such that we're optimizing for the ideal long-term future. And some of that is going to be like, well, there's going to be like, well, what do we do about our existing customers? And if you're if you have to answer that question first before you figure out what sort of the ideal state is and, and move towards that, you're going to get stuck in this constant you know, battle of like, well, what, you know, so there is a, a line of thought out there that I don't agree with that says we should just absolutely hundred percent grandfather all existing customers, uh, on their existing plans. Uh, and grandfather just means, uh, that we don't, we leave them be, uh, that may or may not be, uh, practical or appropriate given your business. And, uh, there are costs, uh, incurred by, uh, doing that. Um, so it can complicate your, uh, revenue operations, uh, systems. It can complicate your, uh, renewal conversations, which also complicates your training and, uh, education of your internal employees, right? Cause they have to like, Oh, well this, this customer's on this, but you know, I just started last week. What do you mean? Like this plan that doesn't exist on our website. And all of a sudden they have to have, you know, and you could imagine that like tree rings on a Sequoia, right over time, like those can those could really add up and create a lot of complexity in your systems and upgrade paths, etc. Um, so there are costs. A couple of tactical pieces of advice. So separate that as a project, right? Separate from what do we want our ideal future state to be? Um, knowing new versus existing customer price changes can be different, um, and you can. You know, there's no you know, hard and fast rules in this game, right? And so one of the things you can do is that you could move your customers, existing customers over a sequence of price hikes or price changes, right? Where maybe just the new customers think there's a philosophical argument to be had that if you, we change the pricing for new customers, is that a really a price change? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not often price shopping for products. I'm not actively buying. Uh, <laughs> I've got other things to do with my time. Uh, so nobody really knows who's a new customer, what your old pricing would be uh, and whatever they didn't buy them. So they don't get the old pricing. So, uh, you know, we can continue to sort of uh, iterate and, and update there. Um, and so then one of the things you maybe want to think through is, okay, as we're looking at changing our, our existing customers, you know, do we want to do it all in one big bang or does it want to be a sequence of moves? 
one of those things, uh, one of those other pieces of tactical advice can be when we're looking at changing, again, pricing and packaging, we'll often just talk about pricing, but we mean both. The idea when we are doing any of these significant uh, pricing changes, we're also changing the plans. So even like before we might have had starter and now we have the entry plan, right? Uh, it's a different, it's a different marketing name. It's something else. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of other you know, reasons internally why we may want to do that as well. But, uh, because, Hey, we're no longer offering uh, that plan. And then, you know, we're want to create structured ways that customers can either stay on their existing plan or maybe migrate. Right. And so a lot of this can get into the weeds depending upon the existing customer situation, but know that you have those levers available to you. You have that flexibility to, to think through. Also, I think the thing is, is that, you know, we've, I've seen a lot of bad pricing announcements come on <laughs> recently. And I think one thing is that in our pricing announcements, I'm not a fan of talking about costs. So yes, inflation is big. Salaries have gone up. But I'm not a fan of cost plus pricing for software. And if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Like customers don't care about your costs. You haven't justified any of your other pricing based upon your costs. Uh, if your costs go down, you know, is it, you're setting the expectation that your your prices will will also go down in the future. And look, some companies absolutely have that. They'll have a uh, especially if you're selling physical goods, they may uh, charge uh, have have riders in their contracts based upon some commodity input prices. Uh, those are, those aren't uh, unheard of in, in more industrial uh, B2B markets. Uh, but I don't think that's what most of the <laughs> people who are uh, listeners of this uh, podcast are in or, or want to do. Um, and so one of the things that we want to really focus on is the value that we've added and changed, you know, and like, especially if we have usage data. So we're talking to a lot of product managers in this audience. If we know, you know, we're in a world of, of mass customization, Hey, Lily, I see you've been using feature A, you know, that we just launched six months ago. I see you and your team are using it a bunch, you know, from what we could tell, that's probably, you know, helps you guys encourage, increase your, your customer acquisition by X percent or this many dollars of revenue based upon, you know, what we've seen from, from other customers. And then th talking about, Hey, look, we, we really value as a customer. Um, and in order to continue to make investments, we're needing to do a price change. We're needing to uh, do this. And then making it that one of the, I think one of the other tactical tips is giving them a, what you might call it like a loyalty discount saying, Hey, since you've been such a loyal customer, we want you to, uh, you know, we're raising prices uh, for all new customers, but you know, we're extending you at your existing price for six, 12 months, you know, before we move you up. So you've got time, right? We're just letting you know now, right? Um, and then, yeah, so focusing on the value, focusing on the investments you want to make, not the costs that you've incurred. Um, and then, you know, highlighting the value that they're receiving from the, from the product. Yeah, I think it's really interesting having it as a, as a second project. I think that makes total sense. Dan, we've got time for one last question, and this is going to be have to be a short one, I think. But just curious about something that we see over and over again on B2B uh, company sites. You know, they'll give you indicative pricing for a couple of things, and then they ask you to get in touch for a quote. Or maybe they don't give you any pricing at all, and they ask you to get in touch for a quote. What's the logic behind this? <laughs> 
most companies, B2B SaaS companies, do have public pricing and packaging. Data on this is actually a little bit harder to come by than you might expect. The best data I've seen is between 50 and 75% have public pricing and packaging. But there can be, you know, many reasons why. So, for example, I worked with a client once that uh, they were more of a, of a legacy provider that had both hardware and software components. And they had a 55-page price list. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons why I, they were talking to me is because their pricing was so complicated that even their internal salespeople couldn't effectively quote their customers. So, yeah, you could publish a 55-page price list on your website, but I don't know that would do you any favors. Uh, so that could be a, a very legitimate reason to have a contact us for a quote. I could talk about, uh, why do we do this? So, so one of the things that you know, you'll often see is even if you do have public pricing and packaging, you'll often see maybe they've got a you know, good, better, best, and then enterprise, and enter- they've got public pricing for the other three, but then enterprise is like, contact us for a quote. Why is that the case? Um, because sometimes, you know, it can be for a bunch of different reasons. And it's not just because, oh, the enterprise people have, you know, we're just going to jerk them around. Because the enterprise people may require such additional, for example, services that the licensing of the cost, the licensing cost that you might quote them on the website becomes a relative minor point of the of the whole invoice they're going to pay because they're going to need you know uh, training and special SLAs and uh, maybe they need some additional customization and implementation services um, and uh, you know you need to hook them up with a partner and so you know what you're trying to do there is be like well I don't want to create a false anchor sometimes also uh, you can have different entirely custom customized offer configurations or pricing metrics for your enterprise clients. And so it, it can really change depending upon you know what the needs of the end client are of like how you're going to configure and price this thing. I will say there are bad reasons to show contact us for a quote. So you're being afraid that your pricing is too high or too low is a bad reason. Uh, our competitors will get easy access to our pricing information. That's a bad reason. Our pricing doesn't represent our actual price because we discount so much. That's a bad reason. Uh, so the, all those reasons signal more significant upstream issues uh, relative to your pricing process, your value proposition definition, your go-to-market strategy or sales process. Uh, but, you know, those, you know, but why do customers do it or why do companies do it? Uh, you know, it, it, good reasons. There are good reasons as, as well. <laughs> Not just to be really annoying then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much. This has been really great. We've run out of time again. And I feel like once again, we kind of uh, could carry on talking about this for ages. But yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate getting the chance to come back and, and chat with you guys and your audience. Thank you so much for having me. Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. 
You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>